Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Hello. Live? Live. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Am I going to see some comments streaming down the side? Somebody say hi, Brad, or something. Make sure I'm not talking to myself. Although I don't mind talking to myself. I also love engaging with Facebook Live, the technology of today. I have some wonderful prepared notes. Um, Where are my notes? Hold on. We're going to talk about keto. Thought that would be a good topic for the Keto Reset Live group. I had an interesting discussion with Mark Sisson yesterday. Hard guy to reach, and we got into it. So one thing we've been thinking about lately, more than ever, is how keto relates or promotes longevity. I wrote an article with Mark for Paleo Magazine on that topic. We're doing more and more research because this is something that's of great interest to me right now, age 53. Mark, what, 65? Uh, We laughed about how we never once thought about longevity for probably the first 40 years of life, especially during the uh, my decade of ages 20 to 30 when I was racing on the professional triathlon circuit and longevity was something that would probably make me snicker. Like, are you kidding me? I'm going for the next race and training my butt off without regard for my long-term health. And of course, when you're doing something that extreme, whether it's a work binge, if you're one of those people in Silicon Valley working the massive hours with the massive stimulation to the brain, doing these incredible projects, advancing technology of society, sometimes it gets out of balance and overboard to the extent that you can compress your lifespan, reduce your longevity potential with a period of overstress, overproduction of stress hormones, insufficient sleep, restoration, recovery. And that was definitely me while I was racing on the professional triathlon circuits. So for that decade of my life, I probably aged 20 years uh, in... Uh, many uh, reference points, whether it's an actual measurement of my telomere length or just the general notion that I was tired and exhausted for most of my my time on the planet during that 10 years. I was asleep for half of my career, sleeping 12 hours a day. Uh, That would be a 10-hour sleep binge every night and two-hour nap every afternoon, but hanging on by a thread and always in those overstressed patterns because I was pushing my body so hard for a distinct athletic goal that's directly opposed to longevity. So today, trying to be more sensible, still pursue fun, exciting peak performance goals, but doing things that promote longevity, like brief, intense, high-intensity high workouts that don't last for too long and don't overproduce the stress hormones and lead to sort of a, a burnout or an exhaustion phase afterward but just trying to find that sweet spot where I'm pushing my body really hard, uh, getting that fitness adaptation, as well as that pulse of anti-aging longevity hormones. Uh, Great stuff. And then the diet is such a huge factor for that. So we're going to talk about the 
recent research with keto and how it promotes longevity by helping you build a healthier and more robust mitochondrial functioning. These are the energy power plants inside each cell that uh, process and produce energy for you to live and be healthy and energetic. And when you are in a high-carbohydrate, high-insulin-producing dietary pattern, uh, burning predominantly glucose as your main fuel source, guess what? You don't need mitochondria to burn energy. You can burn the energy right in the cell, the glucose energy that comes from your high-carbohydrate diet, and therefore, by bypassing the protective benefits of mitochondria, you generate more reactive oxygen species, more oxidative stress when you're simply burning energy, breathing air, and living life. And this is the essence of aging. We all get old over the decades because we're living, breathing organisms that are going to age. So the goal is to minimize the dramatically accelerated process of aging that we experience today as normal. We think when you get to be 65 or 70, you should be retired and sitting around and playing only sports like golf or bowling. I think we're doing better now with the um, the recent generations. You know, people who have started out in their 30s, uh, becoming more aware of health and breakthrough health topics, thinking critically about the notions that we've held for many decades to be uh, to be true about aging. And now we're seeing specimens or more frequent specimens. I mean, we had Jack Lane decades ago, going strong at 90. I played golf with that guy when I was a little kid. I was like 12, 13, 14 years old. And I had some occasions of, uh, many occasions of practicing golf with him because he was on the driving range for hours every single day. And I played a couple nine hole rounds with him, always walking the golf course. And oh my goodness, when he was in his 70s, his 80s, his 90s, he was still doing these insane uh, workouts, like doing 100 pull-ups every day and all kinds of baseline things like that. So we had these outliers that were physical specimens. We thought they were genetic freaks. But now I think it's getting more and more common to see guys, gals in their 60s doing these triathlon events where they're walking around with their six-pack and veins up their legs and all over their body because they've maintained a commitment to health and fitness through their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and they're doing just fine and showing minimal decline to the extent that a fit 65-year-old specimen go to the world championships in triathlon or ultra running or some high competitive event, they can throw down on folks in their 30s and 40s that don't have the same commitment. So longevity is a big interest and concern right now. Uh, I'm going to go back and forth to my um, my notes as well as the insightful comments on the side. Oh, and that's... Um Cloyce is talking about yellow glasses, so I'm going to have to bust those out to make us feel like part of the community that I'm engaging with real people. Oh, let me take off my furry hat that I've had on for a couple hours since my morning cold plunge. I am enjoying the cold plunge so much every day that I often get carried away to the extent that um, I'm in there for now up to seven minutes. Uh, it's 38, 36, 38, 40, somewhere around there. I used to be touting a three-minute binge in there where I felt great and did my deep breathing exercises. I just do 20 deep diaphragmatic breaths into the cold water, the chest freezer, and 
now I'm going slower and slower with my breaths and enjoying a meditative effect accordingly where I just relax in there. The water doesn't even feel cold because it's become such a habitual strategy where I'm doing the deep diaphragmatic breaths, generating heat inside my body, and now I'm in there for around seven minutes. But sometimes you get a Oh, uh, the author Scott Carney titled this. There's a, there's a name for it, but you get a delayed effect where you start to get a little chilly 15, 20 minutes later after getting out of the tub. So those are fun times. I throw on a hat and a long sleeve garment here in 100 degree heat in Sacramento. Pretty funny. Those are lots of asides, but that's what you get for a live show, huh? You're probably, uh, getting, uh, uh, overstimulated and looking at all the cool uh, artwork in the background. I'm trying to make a cool backdrop. There's my wiping out on Lake Tahoe. Uh, there's AI. We still got to give him credit. One of the greatest, most exciting basketball players. And then back to the recording. So Brendan says, um, I know if I'm heading into a time of additional stress, like lack of sleep, expecting the birth of a second child, is there anything different nutritionally or lifestyle-wise that people should be doing? I know I won't be able to be perfect. I'm thinking I should exercise at even lower than MAF heart rate and try to fast longer. Excellent question. Thank you, Brendan. Good luck with your second child, unless that's a hypothetical out of nowhere. Say I'm expecting the birth of my fifth child. Should I eat a different diet? No, I think I'm, I'm going to wish you luck, man. Good luck. Yeah, and the kids will interfere with sleep. But as a parent of now uh, adult children, I remember one of my favorite tips back then. It's like when it was time for the kid to go down for a nap, then you could bust around and do all the things you meant to do while you were engaged and you couldn't with the kid. And then I finally realized, I don't know how many months this took me, that when it was kid's nap time, it was my nap time too. Because being a parent of a young one and and doing all the other stuff of uh, daily life responsibilities is a little tiring. So kids need naps and so do their parents. How about that for a tip? So, uh, your question reminds me of my discussion with Mark yesterday, and he just did a lengthy interview on the Joe Mercola podcast, and one thing that was uh, interesting to him reflecting on that Mercola said was, when you're traveling in an airplane, you are exposed to a high amount of radiation and electromagnetic fields. The radiation from the Earth's environment uh, blasting through the window uh, because we're at such high altitude. So you actually get a radiation effect in an airplane that's much more profound than on land because you're at 40,000 feet. There's no uh, pollution to filter out the sun. I believe that's the reason. I might be completely out of it, but I do know that the radiation exposure in an airplane is much higher. And then you have the electromagnetic fields because you're trapped in a metal box. Uh, there's a lot of signaling. There's a lot of uh, uh, now the, um, the the Wi-Fi and the uh, uh, machinery of the airplane is also giving you this EMF dose. And so Mercola says, especially when you're flying in that high-risk setting, so to speak, he thinks you should fast because when you're in a fasted state, you get these 
often discussed highly touted benefits of improved immune function, uh, enhanced cellular repair, and all that great stuff we talk about while we're on the ground. So interesting thing. And traveling in general, I find to be uh, very stressful. In other words, it stimulates the production of cortisol. You're kind of wired when you travel because your body is not designed, it's not hardwired to travel through time zones and alter your circadian rhythm accordingly. Also, the stress of breathing the air and being in the metal box full of electromagnetic fields. So, traveling itself is stressful. You're producing stress hormones when you travel, when you land in the uh, destination city and you feel great and you're going to go for a run and then you're going to go to the hotel gym and then you're going to stay up late because you got two hours to burn because you're not on your usual time zone. All these things kind of accumulate the stressful effect of traveling. Oftentimes, we're traveling for vacation, which is high stimulation. I'm not going to say stress in the bad sense, but it's a high stimulation experience. So, that in itself is producing stress hormones, generating more stress hormones. You're running around like crazy looking at all the museums or whatever you're doing, or you're going on an important business trip and doing things that are arguably more stimulatory than your normal everyday life, sitting in your cube in your office or driving your usual route to meetings or what have you. So when you're traveling, I'm trying to make a point here, it's going long, but when you're traveling, it's a good idea to fast. I love doing this. It helps me get onto my new time zone uh, more efficiently, easier than if I'm shoving food down my mouth. Also, your food choices are oftentimes not optimal when you're traveling. Uh, So you have that new uh, touted benefit from Dr. Mercola that you're resisting the radiation stress in the airplane by fasting. So great time to practice intermittent fasting. Uh, There is some good research about how your digestive circadian rhythm interacts with your circadian rhythm in general to the uh, conclusion or the hypothesis that if you're fasting while traveling, uh, it can help you get up and at them the next morning morning uh, at sunrise, you know, trying to get into the groove of the new time zone, especially uh, transcontinental when you're doing a big time going through five, six, seven, eight, ten time zones. I think you can uh, fast as, as good as possible and that'll really help you overcome the stress of long-term traveling. So how's that for an answer with Brendan's first thing is, yeah, Oh, it wasn't really an answer. It was starting the answer. Uh, So you're in a stressful circumstance such as jet travel, fasting, great idea. Back to Brendan, getting ready for the birth of second child, stressful time in life, high stimulatory time in life, positive stressful time in life, right? Um, So should I exercise at even lower than math and try to fast longer? I would say those are great ideas, great ambitions, because a lot of times we inaccurately view our exercise patterns as a nice stress release from the stress of daily life, such as busy tending to household matters like a new baby where you're stuck indoors for hours at a time and you're not in your usual routine of busting out for a quick bike ride whenever you want, right? So to get out there and blow off some steam from a busy, stressful workday where you're sitting in the cube or sitting in frustrating meetings, that's great. It does have that balancing effect, but we also have to look in a different perspective and realize that 
the exercise stress is just another form of stress on the same side of the scales of justice, the balance scale, as the stress of the workplace, the stress of uh, managing a young family, uh, dealing with all the other forms of stress that we uh, can measure in life, commuting, uh, uh, working, sitting in an enclosed area, and then you get out into the park and bust out and, and pick up the pace and do a nice tempo run. That's great on one level, and on the other level, we have to now plan for stress reducing Uh, behaviors to counterbalance that overall stressful day. More sleep, rest, foam rolling, things that stimulate parasympathetic activity, meditation, going into the cold plunge is a great stress reducer, an instant stress reducer, and other research. You can find this on the Mark Stanley Apple article, The Definitive Guide to Cold Therapy, or it's called The Maybe Not So Definitive Guide to Cold Therapy because there's still so many question marks out there, especially how you use cold with exercise. But you can see the details in there that cold exposure uh, is long believed to be an instant cure for anxiety. When you plunge into the cold water and you activate that uh, autonomic nervous system response, you will transition from that sympathetic dominance, that fight or flight dominance, into the parasympathetic response. Uh, I think overall, perhaps it's when you get out, because obviously it's stressful to plunge into the cold, but it does something to your uh, blood circulation, respiratory function, uh, your brain function. You get a pulse of epinephrine and norepinephrine into the brain as soon as you plunge into the cold water, and that will help uh, rebalance, recalibrate a brain that is in an overstressed state. Very cool. Oh, Patrick Hansen writing in says, I'm getting ready to travel now. So good luck with your fasting. Really try it. This is anecdotal for me, but I don't know how one, how long it took me to switch over to this strategy of fasting while I travel. I love it. It's great. You don't have to pick up the peanuts on the airplane flight or the crappy prepared meals. Um, you're maybe if you're not highly accustomed to fasting and it's 2 p.m. your time of that day and you're feeling hungry accordingly, maybe that's a good time to take a little nap on the airplane and allow yourself to get a little tired. Same with when you're sick. When I'm getting the first signs of uh, upper respiratory infection, a cold, such as a sore throat or a heavy, a hot head or something like that, I will fast completely until the symptoms are gone. And many times I beat out a cold in one day rather than dragging for two weeks because when I don't eat, my energy level is naturally reduced. Over time, obviously, if I skip one meal, I'm fine. If I skip three meals, I'm starting to feel it. I'm not a perfect specimen of full keto adaptation where I can fast for seven days on the drop of a hat and not complain. Maybe I should try it. I know people talk about that where they have a struggle for the first day or two and then they feel great for five days. So something to think about. But anyway, when I'm feeling uh, suboptimal immune function, I feel fasting is the most powerful weapon to help you beat that cold and t- kick your immune system into high gear. On the contrary, what happens when you ingest some calories is you get a boost of energy and that might affect your behavior that day, whereby your best course of action might be to rest and really 
tone things down. I'm a big fan of calling in sick and staying home rather than exposing your coworkers in the workplace because you're so freaking important you can't miss a day of work. So if you even have the slight uh, symptoms of a cold, stay home, spare everyone else that might have compromised immune function and have an easy chance to catch the cold from you, and do a day of work at home. You can still be productive sitting in bed with your laptop or whatever you do. For the most part, a lot of people can make it work. I know not everyone can, and sometimes you have to rally and pump the meds into your system, but the rebound effect, the consequence, is really important to understand that if you went to work and pushed yourself with doses of caffeine, sugar, whatever it took to get through the day, uh, warrant longer rest periods and less activity at home, okay? Balance things out at all times, even from those great stress-relieving workouts. All right, Patrick says... uh, He reports that his HDL and triglyceride ratio has gotten down to one to one, and that is uh, often touted as ideal or a wonderful goal to aspire to, to get your trigs and your HDL one to one. It's absolutely essential, urgent to get your triglycerides to HDL ratio below 3.5 to 1. So in other words, if your triglycerides are at 150 and your HDL is at 30, uh, quick mathematics there, uh, that's worse than 3.5 to 1. 3 to 1 would be 50 to 150, right? So that would be okay. That would be non-urgent medical health concern. If your triglycerides are under 150, that's the often touted goal. That's what uh, mainstream medical scientists going to suggest, and then we want your HDL above a minimum level of 40. And these are believed to be, by many health experts, medical experts, to be the most important heart disease risk factor numbers, vastly more important than your total HDL, excuse me, than your total LDL, which unfortunately uh, is still holding true in mainstream medicine as the end-all tracker of heart disease risk factor, and then they will dose you with statins and you'll go back six weeks later and the doctors will proudly proclaim that you have lowered your LDL and thus lowered your heart disease risk factor. Perhaps they haven't seen the meta-study from UCLA. That's a study of hundreds of other studies. That's the term meta-study. This is a meta-study referenced by Dr. Ron Sinha, author of the South Asian Health Solution and leading health practitioner for large employee groups in the Silicon Valley. S-I-N-H-A. You can Google him. He has great articles on his website. Uh, but he often references this meta-study that revealed that 80% of heart attack victims had an LDL value that was considered in the safe range. 80% had safe or low LDL. A great number of those people in that category were most likely taking statins and had an artificially suppressed LDL. Their doctor gave them the thumbs up, and then they went off and had a heart attack. Sorry, this is not Brad Kern's opining here, just uh, reporting the news, reporting the story that this meta-study exists. Dr. Sinha looked into it and touts it frequently that you're LDL, especially an artificially suppressed LDL, is no guarantee of protection. I know we want a quick fix, a quick pill, and a number on a piece of paper that says we're good to go, but we need to look at this critically and realize that people are dropping even though 
They have low LDL numbers on their statins. People are dropping even though they are fabulous athletic specimens with six-packs and great times and uh, award medals hanging on their wall because of the overstress patterns that they're engaging in, the chronic cardio or the chronic strength training patterns that are uh, uh putting their heart under stress, causing inflammation and scarring, leaving them more more vulnerable to conditions like AFib, and out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, because they're so fit, they're revealed to be disastrously unhealthy and suffer uh, either heart attack or setbacks, extreme heart event, where they go in for a routine checkup and they're blocked up four ways and have to have a quadruple bypass right off of the the, the soccer field, the softball field, and into the... uh, medical world for uh, surgery. Scary stuff. It's happening all the time. There are numerous articles that I mention frequently that will scare you straight and get you thinking in a bigger picture, bigger perspective. One of them's titled Running on Empty. Another one's titled One Foot in the Grave. And these are articles about uh, extreme endurance athletes that have come to misfortune and high risk uh, with their uh, cardiovascular function despite their hard work. Yeah, so Dr. Kate Shanahan, Dr. Sinha are touting this TRIGS to HDL ratio as very important and very revealing. If your triglycerides are low, then you are not a ticking time bomb. You are most likely doing good things in your bloodstream. You're not accumulating fatty deposits on the walls of your arteries. If your triglycerides are high, regardless of your LDL level, that suggests that you have a preponderance of the highly problematic small, dense LDL rather than the generally harmless, large, fluffy LDL. There's two kinds of LDL. LDL particle size is a very important test that you need to ask your doctor to perform to go deeper than your uh, routine LDL total level. So if you have high triglycerides, then you want to test your LDL particle size. You will most likely have a high value uh, for small dense LDL, and those are the things that are going to be of grave concern for your heart disease risk patterns. Conversely, if you can get those HDL numbers up. Everyone now knows that's the good cholesterol. They call it nature's garbage trucks because HDL molecules scavenge the bloodstream and take out the potentially problematic molecules like the small dense LDL that have the potential to lodge on the walls of your arteries. So high HDL is good. How do you get high HDL? Exercise, consuming healthy saturated fats are two ways that are known to raise HDL. Okay, so you get your high HDL and then you're lowering your triglycerides by lowering your carbohydrate intake slash insulin production. Uh, back to finish Patrick's question. So he got his trigs to HDL one to one despite an overall cholesterol 218 and an LDL at 120. So I think those are in the uh, the red flag range. I remember getting my blood test and seeing the uh, the red flag on my total LDL. I have no concern whatsoever about that because my HDL is higher than my triglycerides. So bigger picture, really important to learn and understand this stuff. Discuss these matters with your doctor. And if your doctor is a brick wall, uh, not to give you medical advice on the show, but I can give you an opinion that you might 
strongly want to go find a different physician that's more attuned with the breaking science and the great work of folks like Dr. Kate Shanahan, Dr. Ron Sinha. Uh, Kate's book, Deep Nutrition, goes deep into all matters of nutrition and health, heart disease protection. Same with Dr. Sinha's book, The South Asian Health Solution. He is of Indian descent and works with a lot of population of uh, East Indians, so that's why the title. But his book is representative for everybody uh, who's interested in uh, reducing heart disease risk factors. All right, so Patrick says, thanks for the podcast, because he never would have known um, how how relevant uh, Triggs to HDL ratio is, and looking at that big picture and not worrying so much about those high LDLs. Uh, high LDL is not necessarily a great sign, but if your trigs are low, then it's very likely to be uh, a benign situation. If your trigs are high, then you got a problem. So I, I don't think I'm uh, going to be in dispute with any physician on the planet when I say that your triglyceride number is really important. That's the level of circulating fat in your blood. We want that to, <laughs> we want to be burning fat rather than having it floating around and potentially causing problems. And those problems occur mostly when you have a high carbohydrate, high insulin producing diet. Okay, our heart disease lesson for the day is over. Back to keto. So uh, my discussion with Mark was centered on these concepts uh, of metabolic flexibility. And we've heard this a lot as the ultimate goal of keto to be metabolically flexible, to be able to burn a variety of fuel sources on demand depending on your body's needs at the time. So if we really focus on this concept and take it further to what metabolic flexibility really means, of course it means that you're good at fasting, you can skip meals and feel fine, you're good at burning body fat, if you have excess body fat, you're good at getting it off. If you uh, make that decision and set that goal and say, hey, I need to drop a few pounds, I'm just going to dial things in for a few days, a few weeks, whatever it is, and you're so good at burning body fat that these are no longer frustrating lifelong challenges, but simple, almost mathematical equations. Uh, in some of our books, we lay everything out where we're talking about a protein target every day, uh, a carbohydrate limit. For example, keto wants you to go 50 grams per day or less in total carb intake. We have our protein targets of 0.7 grams per pound of lean body mass. And then you use fat as the variable, the lever as Luis Villasenor calls it. And you lower your total daily fat intake to the extent that you stimulate uh, the burning of stored body fat to make up that deficit and get all the calories you need for the day. And then you can lose, let's say, four pounds of excess body fat per month and stay at that rate completely comfortably, just with a little more mindfulness to your eating patterns and regulating the carbon protein intake so that you can get into that fat burning mode. So that side of metabolic flexibility is generally well understood. But thanks to, uh, with inspiration from my friend, Dr. Tommy Wood up in the Seattle, Washington area, did a great podcast with him on my brand new podcast called Get Over Yourself. Go check it out on iTunes or wherever you take podcasts. 
really fun stuff. More details at my website, bradkerns.com. But it's a fun effort to kind of broaden the subject matter, the content that I talk about beyond the ketogenic eating, uh, such as I do for uh, the uh, the keto podcast on the Primal Blueprint channel. By the way, this is going to be uh, a simulcast. This this Facebook Live is also turning into a podcast. And then, of course, my Primal Endurance podcast, which focuses generally on endurance training. So now with this Get Over Yourself, my theme is to slow down, take a deep breath, have some fun in life, reject that high-stress type A approach that often leads to disappointment, suffering, and burnout, and together work hard to get over ourselves. And the message comes from my career as an athlete when I got overly competitive, overly intense, too driven, too focused, pushed myself too hard, struggled and suffered accordingly. And when I was able to relax and enjoy the process and the the daily routine of being out there outside, pushing myself, enjoying the outdoors and the nature and the competitive experience on the starting line without attaching my self-esteem to the results, that's when I was I was able to be the best that I could be and experience the most measurable success as well. So there's the theme of the show. Have all kinds of diverse and super interesting guests. And I also do these little breather shows where it's just me in the studio talking about anything that comes to mind. One of the uh, newest shows on the channel is about the uh, Japanese soccer team's locker room after the World Cup. Wonderful story. So diverse content. Check it out. Hopefully you'll like it. You can see the sticker in the background. That's me high jumping over the bar, getting over myself. Okay, so that was a commercial in the middle of the show, huh? So back to the metabolic flexibility concept and my discussions with Dr. Tommy Wood of NourishBalanceThrive.com. Plug for those guys. Go see what they're doing over there. It's the most comprehensive uh, consultation, testing, refining, peak performance uh, protocol that you can find anywhere on the planet. Absolutely fabulous what they've done. I've done several shows on the Primal Blueprint, Primal Endurance channel, uh, where they were taking me through the program and consulting with me as the recording, as the show, so people can see what kind of experience you get when you sign up and do this comprehensive health consulting program. Anyway, what Dr. Tommy said uh, during our podcast on Get Over Yourself was that Metabolic flexibility also means you should be able to handle anything. You're flexible. So if you happen to have a carbohydrate binge period, it shouldn't be a disaster. Yes, it's going to knock you out of ketosis for one day, two days, or up to five days. Big deal. You just ate some carbs. You're going to process them. Hopefully, you're going to wake up the next morning without a hangover or without things going off the rails and you turning into a sugar binger for the next four months. Uh, those are not indicative of me- metabolic flexibility either. So I kind of like that perspective of talking about the other side, besides always talking about the fasting and making more ketones and testing your blood and getting your numbers. Also, it it conveys the idea that you can handle a, a fat binge, a carb binge, an ice cream binge like I went on when I visited Seattle this summer because they have amazing homemade ice cream stores up there. Uh, what was my favorite one? Frankie and Joe's Vegan Ice Cream, Seattle, Washington. And you walk in there and they have these super cool flavors with healthy ingredients. One of them was kale lime ice cream. Very good. Had kale on the ice cream. Another one was, I put this on my Instagram, uh, salty caramel ash, and it was black or grayish black color of ice cream. Absolutely delicious. 
and the black was coming from the activated charcoal that they actually put into the ice cream. That's a known uh, digestive aid. It helps cleanse your digestive tract, good to take while you're traveling. But fun stuff like that, I wasn't terribly concerned with my uh, my carbohydrate count during that trip. I was enjoying healthy, nutritious foods and even an indulgence that uh, was made with good, clean ingredients, handmade. Thumbs up, going for it. Huge, huge difference between my story that I just related and someone who habitually throws in a few pints of Ben & Jerry's into their shopping cart every time they go to the grocery store and grabs those things while they're watching uh, their Netflix programs every single night. They're addicted to carbs. That's a disaster. That's an accelerated aging plan. So when we're talking about well-chosen treats and mindful eating and eating just enough to feel satisfied rather than stuffing your face, all that stuff is pursuant to metabolic flexibility. So what Mark and I were talking about uh, is that we've both kind of um, uh, morphed or transitioned into this routine that you might describe as fractal eating, meaning that one day looks possibly quite different from another day. I still do a lot of fasting. It's quite often spontaneous In other words, I'm just fasting because I was too busy that morning to eat or I was heading out and off somewhere where I didn't have time to prepare my fabulous super nutrition morning green smoothie. You can search YouTube for that video, Uh, Brad Kern's super nutritious green smoothie and see all the stuff I put in there. That was at the direction of, of Tommy and Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive to get a concentrated dose of all kinds of nutrients as well as peak performance agents, supplements, because I'm still trying to be an athlete even though I'm uh, getting into to the older age group. So I'm putting things like creatine in there and L-carnitine and glutamine, uh, protein powders, stuff that might only be relevant for the athletic-minded among us, but it was uh, working good for me and I've been enjoying that smoothie many days in addition to enjoying fasting many other days. And this fractal eating pattern is indicative of metabolic flexibility because whether I fast until 12 or 1 p.m. or whether I slam this smoothie that probably has a ton of calories in there, uh, including uh, uh, coconut milk, coconut oil, kefir. I just bought some raw milk at the store. The first time I've ever had raw milk. I've written about it for many years. Like raw milk is the best because pasteurized kills all the nutrition. So try to go get that. And I've never had any in my whole life. And then I have a person sampling raw milk. I met the lady. She came straight from the farm, drove like four hours to Sacramento to show off her raw milk wares from her farm. Delicious stuff. So all that stuff will go into my smoothie and I'll enjoy that uh, in the morning, and I'll feel hopefully just fine, just the same, whether I fasted or whether I'm making this giant uh, breakfast scene with the green smoothie or even, you know what I had today for breakfast? Avocado mousse. Dr. Lindsay Taylor's fabulous recipe. What book is that in, Lindsay? I think it's in the Keto Reset Diet. Uh, So you can look in the back of that, and it might be in uh, a variation in the Keto Reset Diet cookbook coming soon this fall. But that was delicious. Oh, my goodness. Little melted chocolate, uh, some mushed-up avocado. Uh, There was no egg in that particular recipe, but there's another mousse recipe that I've been making that uh, consists of egg yolks, egg whites, 
melted 85 or 90% dark chocolate. I've messed around and put a heavy cream as well as coconut milk in there and made this preparation absolutely delicious. And if you look at the macronutrient profile, it literally can be consumed every day for a healthy breakfast. If you want to indulge in a chocolate mousse every single day, you're getting wonderful nutrition from the egg yolks, the 85% dark chocolate, 90% dark chocolate with the antioxidants. So it's vastly superior to, let's say, an oatmeal with toast and fruit and orange juice and turns into a big sugar bomb, even though there's some nutritional benefits when you're getting your fruit plate or your fancy preparation at the Ritz-Carlton, the Healthy Start Breakfast for $39. Uh, We make fun of that in the Primal Blueprint because of the uh, amount of carbohydrates in there. Probably better off fasting, even though this is touted as the healthiest start possible at the Ritz-Carlton. So anyway, this uh, fractal eating indicates that you have done the hard work to develop excellent metabolic flexibility to the extent that you can handle whatever. Furthering this point, especially for those who are fitness athletic-minded, one of my insights is that it might be a good idea to target uh, additional uh, caloric intake around your uh, ambitious workout efforts. People talk about this a lot. Sometimes I feel like they uh, mess it up or uh, over-dramatize the idea of that you need to go take 20 grams of carbs right before your workout to get a performance boost. And uh, I'm not sure I buy into that stuff. I think I get a performance boost from um, listening to uh, a high-energy song right before I do my sprints or whatever, right? You can get jacked up and motivated and pumped up without a, a little dose of some food um, that, that's going to get um, uh, overemphasized as some big deal. So whatever you're doing before the workout, I think I would like to uh, open up the discussion or the idea to talk about, let's say, the 36 hours following the workout and what you're going to do there. If you're a heavy-duty keto person, We know Mike Mutzel talks about this a lot on High Intensity Health, another fascinating interview I conducted for Get Over Yourself podcast, coming soon, his interview. Anyway, he says that if you are in this fat and keto-adapted realm, you are operating in an entirely different paradigm, an entirely different biome than someone who is carbohydrate-dependent. And almost all of the research on exercise physiology and peak performance and recovery is framed in the carbohydrate paradigm. Dr. Tim Noakes talks about this, and when he theatrically tore out pages of his best-selling epic book, Lore of Running, to convey the idea that he is now rethinking some of the basic notions of exercise physiology because things change when you get fat adapted. One quick example is... Uh, the idea that the ketogenic diet is protein sparing. It's known to be protein sparing. So when you go do a heavy, intense CrossFit session and the concept that you're breaking down uh, a lot of muscle tissue because of the, uh, the, the workout stress, guess what? You're not breaking down as much if you're fat and keto adapted. You're not burning as many carbs if you're fat and keto adapted. So you don't need that massive refueling session after that we've been told for so long is critically important. Interesting stuff. So this is where the experimenting, uh, the experiment of one comes in because theoretically, uh, when I was 
in really strict keto, writing the book Keto Reset Diet in 2017, and still doing my sprint workouts and my uh, you know high intensity performance, I'd feel fine during the workout. I'd feel fine fasting for hours afterward, trying to get those maximum autophagy benefits. But then I noticed over a period of months that, let's say 36 hours later, I kind of felt lousy and I really needed a nap and I couldn't stay awake at my computer. And this happened so many times that I identified a pattern of this sort of delayed uh, reaction to, let's say, the uh, combined stressors of a high-intensity sprint workout, sprint-slash-high-jump workout, combined with fasting, combined with overall ketogenic eating where my appetite is naturally suppressed, and maybe overall I'm shortchanging myself and delaying my recovery or causing myself to be a little more sluggish than I would like to at rest. So uh, in consultation with Nourish Balance Thrive guys, they suggested I experiment with this uh, super nutrition morning green smoothie as well as a generally increased caloric intake. Uh, to support my athletic goals and also to recognize that I didn't have body fat concerns. I didn't have blood work that was of concern. So I might be in a different category than someone who's trying very hard to reduce excess body fat and struggling and not succeeding. Uh, they might want to, um, focus more on reducing carb intake and also reducing total overall workout volume output in the interest of burning excess body fat. How strange does that sound after years and decades of saying, oh, I'm getting a little heavy. I have to go to the gym more. I have to put in more hours. I have to up my mileage so I can get down to my racing weight. And now in many ways, by many accounts, um, that could be counterproductive strategy. We know that it's mostly about diet and regulating your carb intake and moderating your insulin production. And going hand in hand with that might be a reduction in overall workout volume and intensity so that you are better able to adhere to your dietary guidelines as opposed to someone who's trying to keep up that same level of athletic training while dramatically dropping their carbs. And I might have been a guy in that category over 2017 where I felt fine while I was doing it. I want to reiterate that I felt fine. I could fast no problem. I wasn't starving. I wasn't ignoring my appetite, hunger, satiety signals, and I was going along uh, just fine. But then throwing these workouts in and noticing... Uh, not such great recovery in the 36 to 48 hours after, that's where my insight occurred that I might do better to consume more healthy, nutritious food. This is a different uh, insight than saying uh, you can go and have a free pass to consume crap food because you're an athlete. Okay, huge difference. So there is never any call to consume uh, the nutrient-devoid grains, sugars, refined vegetable oils that are especially uh, destructive to someone who's uh, a fitness enthusiast rather than someone who's sitting on their butt and not eating as much of that. So I think the athletic world needs to wake up to the reality that they have uh, more heightened nutritional needs than a sedentary person and are less warranted to go on their uh, sugar binges because they're compromising their recovery and their performance, where the other person's not a performer in the first place. So they're compromising their health by eating their donut and sitting at their desk for eight hours. But they got other issues to think about, which is you know getting into healthy lifestyle patterns. So if you're in these healthy, fit lifestyle patterns, we want to look at that diet and say, how can I consume more uh, 
amount of highly nutritious calories. A second plate of steaming kale uh, with sprinkled uh, walnuts and sun-dried tomatoes and some grass-fed meat if you're a meat eater. And if not, you're putting whatever sardines or uh, trying to go all the way vegan and being uh, very mindful and precise in your approach so that you don't run into nutritional problems. Yes, it's open for anybody. And the idea of getting maximum nutritional value in your diet to align with your athletic goals is... Um, I think uh, a really valid one. It's worked really well for me. So to report back, um, when I was in my strict keto phase, I was probably eating significantly fewer daily calories than I am these days. That also means I'm eating more carbohydrate than I was just as a consequence of eating more daily calories. If I have two bowls full of uh, chard, that's going to be more calories than one bowl, right? Uh, And feeling like I'm recovering better and, and doing better workouts. Yeah, you know who else talks about this is Ben Greenfield. I love his take on this where he says he spends a lot of time in a fasted state, a lot of time in a ketogenic state uh, due to his dietary practices and his uh, extreme commitment to training. He's into the obstacle course racing scene, so he's doing these very impressive high-intensity workouts. Uh, And then at night, he says he enjoys his life. So his wife's making uh, an assortment of uh, uh, delicious, uh, they might be treats or meals, whatever, uh, that are higher in carb than a ketogenic person might otherwise think about. But what happens is when he's enjoying himself, oh, hey, there's some thumbs up there for enjoying your life, and he's got kids, and they're probably eating this cool stuff, and they're not too worried about the number of dates they're consuming on a daily basis because dates is the highest sugar fruit. Big deal. It's something that tastes good. It's got nutrition. Uh, growing people uh, obviously have fewer concerns with limiting carbohydrate intake. And in Ben's case, he says that he's ensuring that he recovers from his workouts with these evening windows of carbohydrate enjoyment. Get up the next day, fasting till whenever, doing a crazy 30-minute obstacle course workout in the morning, thinking nothing of it, not having that intense need to refuel after because he's highly fat and keto-adapted. But that's kind of a cool lifestyle pattern to consider where you have these uh, uh, refeeding windows or whatever. Brian McAndrew, the guy who's mastering this recording right now, check his shit out at ketoreset.com. He's one of our success stories, having transformed his body uh, very uh, admirably in the gym and with a strict devotion to keto. Uh, But he has a concept that's now uh, gained worldwide popularity and acclaim where he says, life will give you refeeds. So rather than this annoying regimented pattern, which we read about and talk about so often on uh, on the groups and the chat rooms and on listening on podcasts where people are saying, yes, on the odd days, on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you can increase your carb intake by 20 to 40 grams, uh, and that'll be your refeed. And it's like, whoa, if that works for you, thumbs up, go for it. For me, my life is too busy. I'm too important. Just kidding. My life is too busy and my personality is too loosey-goosey to have the slightest interest in 
measuring my carbohydrate intake to the extent that I'm doing a purposeful refeed where I need a notepad to make sure that I got 20 extra grams of carbs that day. So when Brian says life will give you refeeds, this might mean a vacation, a visit to uh, the in-laws where they baked uh, uh, something that they want you to try that's uh, you know homemade and, and made with love and care, and oh, it's got some sugar in it. Well, guess what? That's going to be a refeed, and that's something that you can pair very successfully with, for example, a high-intensity workout in a fasting period the following day. So I like that concept of life will give you refeeds. Maybe we should title the freaking show that so that that will get burned into your brain, and you don't have to stress about uh, finding a way to refeed, nor do you have to stress about a departure from this super strict commitment to keto. And I think that was the essence of my conversation with Mark yesterday, that now he's going into a more fractal eating pattern rather than a disciplined eating pattern. I remember the days, Mark and I, in 2017, when we were sending each other pictures back and forth with the blood ketone meter readings and going into deep research mode to try to prepare a thoughtful book for you to read and enjoy. But there was that period of time where we really had to learn what was going on, learn how the body is affected by various uh, carb intake patterns and overall caloric intake patterns and fasting patterns and all that fun stuff. We both had the uh, uh, amazing realization and that as we got more and more competent, more and more committed to keto, uh, sometimes or frequently the numbers were lower, right? So initially um, the numbers were higher and then the ketone, blood ketone readings were lower possibly because of what Dr. Kate Shanahan calls ketone flux. In other words, you get really good at making and burning ketones when you make them. Rather than making them and having them accumulate in your bloodstream, giving you a good reading on the meter, and then uh, having you not burn those efficiently and getting them excreted or what have you. So, uh, in other words, not to worry over time if your ketone numbers drop. Huh even though you think you're being devoted and committed and wondering, what does a guy got to do to pull some numbers around here? I'll admit to being a little frustrated because I'm looking at these readings and looking at my notes where I'm writing down like my workouts and uh, 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 my, my food patterns at that time to, to build this research, uh, experimental research. And I'm looking at, okay, uh, fasted for 18 hours. Prior to that, I had a 100% uh, zero-carb meal, such as uh, whatever it was, an omelet or 90% uh, you know, fat and protein, almost no carbs, and then another 12 hours behind that, including a high-intensity sprint workout. So here I go, pricking my finger theatrically. I know I'm going to set new records, and I prick my finger, and it's 0.4 or something. And the official cutoff for being in ketosis for joining the club is 0.5 millimoles per milliliter. Uh, so that was weird to me. And uh, oh, my mic just went out because I got too excited. There. Uh, that was weird to me, but it makes more sense now to uh, realize the idea that I was making whatever ketones I needed, burning them, not accumulating a lot in my bloodstream. I just heard recently, I can't remember who told me this, was it Mike Mutzel? Eh, someone talking about keto, that they are reevaluating and now lowering the uh, blood ketone threshold to something like 0.3 instead of the long-touted 0.5. <laughs> so now a lot of those blood readings that I had were low. Uh, maybe I still qualify for the club. I don't know. 
What else? Um, oh, well, you know what? Claire in Bristol, United Kingdom, thanks for sending me a note. I love hearing from international listeners. That's the great thing about uh, the podcast scene and the internet groups as we're connected around the world. Fun stuff. Um, I think I got the gist of my conversation uh, with Mark across to you um, and the thought about ketones promoting longevity because they recruit that mitochondria, they get your mitochondrial system optimized, they stimulate something called mitochondrial biogenesis. We know that ways to stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis include uh, extreme or prolonged exercise, giving the cells that hormetic stressor to come back stronger and build more healthy mitochondria to produce more energy for the next time that you're going for a long-distance run or a high-intensity workout. So we know from uh, exercise patterns, fasting, starving the cells of energy, stressing them accordingly so they come back stronger and build more energy power plants when they have an energy shortage from fasting. And then finally, being in nutritional ketosis, which is kind of the... um, the uh, uh, adaptation to not wanting to starve yourself the rest of your life to get these fasting-like benefits, right? We know about these caloric restriction society folks that are touting uh, the longevity benefits of just eating two pieces of lettuce in the morning and uh, an orange in the evening, and that's their daily caloric intake, and uh, isn't that wonderful for them? doesn't seem like a fun way to live. A lot of us want to enjoy life and enjoy indulgent meals, but if you can do so in a ketogenic pattern, you will afford yourself many of the fasting-like benefits without having to starve yourself. Uh-huh. Okay. And so, building that additional mitochondria, uh, becoming more calorically efficient so you're not constantly in an overfed state, that's another big uh, strike against the high-carbohydrate diet, is that you have high insulin levels uh, over long periods of time, hyperinsulinemia, and when insulin levels are high in your bloodstream, it's difficult to access and burn off stored body fat. Accordingly, even though you have a lot of energy stored in your fat cells throughout your body, wishing it could be accessed and mobilized into free fatty acids to burn for energy, a long, clean-burning, stable source of energy like the campfire analogy, you can search for that video on YouTube, one of my favorite coming out of the Keto Reset Diet course. Uh, if you're in that carbohydrate dependency pattern with high insulin levels, the fat is literally locked away, inaccessible due to high insulin in the bloodstream. Therefore, what's going to happen as the insulin transports nutrients out of your bloodstream into storage is you're going to have that sugar crash, that energy lull that's going to stimulate appetite. That's right. It's going to kick your appetite hormones into high gear and command you to eat more food. And this is going to be a lifelong pattern as we can all reference from having to adhere to this three meal a day or six meal a day pattern when it comes to the athletes. And we've been doing this for years and decades because we are terrible at burning stored body fat because we produce too much insulin in the diet. When you are in that constantly overfed state, when you're constantly slamming down meals on a regular basis to the tune of three or six per day, you also overstimulate these agents called growth factors in the bloodstream, namely IGF-1, insulin growth factor 
Cancer 1, and mTOR, a mammalian target of rapamycin, and these things are, have been known to increase your risk of cancer and unregulated cell division. When the cells constantly have enough energy, when they're constantly overfed, they tend to divide quicker. That is the essence of aging, is the number of times a cell divides until it finally dies. You have a finite number of cell division events available, and also the unregulated cell division that sets the stage for cancer. So when you're overfed, you increase your cancer risk and you accelerate aging. Bottom line, straight up, when you're metabolically flexible and metabolically efficient and can do things like fasting and stay in uh, keto periods for whether it's even uh, half a day or six months or six weeks is our minimum requirement we uh, suggest in the Keto Reset Diet, that's when you start accumulating these wonderful longevity benefits. <sighs> that was a pretty fast-moving, hard-hitting show. I know I took a lot of tangents and threw out a lot of fun energetic uh, discussion points. If you have any questions, please email info at ketoreset.com so we can cover them on additional podcasts. And definitely go to ketoreset.com. Check out the wonderful mastery course. We're getting a lot of great emails from people that have succeeded, that have dropped excess body fat. Of course, that's a main goal of many people, but there's also many other letters saying that they just feel better, their brain's working better, they're not in these uh, burnout phases where they just feel like they're in a brain fog every single day at a certain time of day, and the information is presented in a really nice way that's giving you bite-sized chunks to consume, uh, mostly in video format. I'm the host of many of the videos covering the content of the book, and we also have a wonderful smattering of experts to learn from other people, all in one place at the Keto Reset Mastery Course Portal. So thanks for listening this long or watching on Facebook this long. And to reward you at the end here, I'm going to give you a 20% discount to enroll in this course. And right at checkout, if you type in Brad20, I know hard to remember, but Brad20, Brad's giving you a 20% discount. You can go to town and activate that discount. So try it out, ketoreset.com. Thank you for listening to the show. Send me your comments, questions, feedback. Good luck with your keto efforts and your dietary transformation efforts. Thanks for watching. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my gosh. So she likes like the mayo on a Oh yeah, she, so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have, uh, we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the, the ranch, um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so, you know, that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance.